Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. All right, guys. In this little thing we call democracy, we have this other thing called citizen power. We just need to know how to use it, to be perfectly honest. Little TBH. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you are seriously not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. So when you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Makes sense, right? So we have the thing for you to make this magic happen. And that is Citizen Power with our friends Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan. And it is their 10-day course that offers civics education that you missed or or you might have forgotten from high school. You know, you might have been skipping class. You might have been eating Chipotle. I mean, that's what I was doing. So we get it. And this 10-day course is free for the first five days. So before we get into that, let's just get into like what this course is going to give you. And it's not about the facts, it's not about the dates. This isn't just like a memorization game, which don't get me wrong. Like everyone loves a good Jeopardy moment, but that's not what this is about. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. So by taking this course, you'll learn what you should be taught in a civics class, but honestly, as not So your rights and your powers as a citizen, which sounds pretty basic, but a lot of us don't know them. How you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and honestly, the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. So there are a lot of takeaways that are a part of this course, and they honestly make you the CEO of your elected officials, which you are, by the way, FYI, in case you missed it. So it's time to make sure your voice is heard, time to dive in, time to have a little education moment. So head to the link in our episode description to start this awesome civics class. And like we said, get the first five days free by using our link shared there. Get rocking, get rolling, get learning. All right, guys, do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or even some new incredible skincare? Prima has amazing doctor-formulated, clinically validated, and high-performance CBD products for the skin, the body, and the mind, you guys, and it comes in so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, skincare. I've gotten some serious relief from stress, hangovers, anxiety, even PMS with this stuff. So give it a shot. Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's top 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, 100% clean with strict safety standards, which is all so, so important to us. So there's also some big news because Prima has launched an app that offers self-care in the palm of your hands and allows you to shop with ease access exclusive content, and much more. So lucky for us, you can enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive, limited time, 20% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, feel better every day. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back. We had a little hiatus. 
but here we are with a new amazing episode. So excited. I'm excited about the episode. I'm also excited that your state of California made some good decisions. Mm. They didn't get Mm -hmm. too, you know, drunk and, you know, make some errors in their ways. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I gotta say, you know, I'm really proud to see that Newsom pulled through in this recall. I mean, like, look, we've talked about Newsom's issues, but like the opponent the main opponent the opponent the opponent you guys it's just it was scary there for a second i will not lie to you but quick recap here because the california recall election happened last week we didn't have an episode so we didn't go over it but it was a blowout well gavin newsom really he won big and obviously got lots of support in coastal areas and urban centers while the kind of rural north and agricultural inland had far fewer votes and largely largely wanted him gone the other kind of thing that was interesting last week there was this graphic that was circulating where it showed the map of california and showed where like what counties and what areas voted yes on the recall and how it was like an exact match to all the COVID hotspots in california it was it's pretty shocking and just it's classic though it just i mean what do you expect you know when when it makes sense it makes sense and the fact that ended up being 63 percent vote not to recall and 37 percent said yes i mean that's not even close like it's just not even remotely and like i think too and like this was something that if you guys tuned into our ig live with platinum rule podcast last week as we talked about before the the main day of voting and all of that we chatted about how so many Democrats were very confused as to whether or not they were supposed to participate or not. And sort of that like background info of like, from a civics perspective, like, am I supposed to show up at the polls? Is it only the people that are like trying to get them out of office that are supposed to show up? And it's interesting to see like all that confusion and so many of these things sort of come to light. So if there are any other sort of moments in the sun of like recall stuff or other election elements that come up and you guys are like, wait, what the fuck? What the, what the, what? Like DM us because we'll, we'll help to explain yeah. that because I think there just was so, that's what was so scary for a while. It was like, it was confusing. So people literally didn't know if they were supposed to like vote or not. I can't blame anyone yeah. for that. No, there was a ton of confusion about whether to vote. And also if you vote, do you also vote for a replacement do you fill out the backside and it was just it it was a little bit confusing and I think the whole process is that's a whole can of worms to get into of I don't personally agree with the process or it just needs to be reformed immensely the fact that like two million people can throw our entire state into an election that costs hundreds of millions of dollars and ultimately ends up like this with these kind of results, 63% to 37%. It's just such a waste of time, waste of money. And it. I think that whole recall process needs to be reformed immensely. I mean, it was also interesting looking at this, like this is also, I think, giving Democrats, I mean, and Republicans kind of a wake up call as to like what's going to happen next year with the midterms and different strategies and how like you know this trump ghost is still so very much around and i think people you know saw larry elder who was the one that would replace him and who was leading in the polls who is literally trump 2.0 honestly he he ended up worse he yeah i mean in a lot of ways he basically won the replacement vote in a landslide so again if people didn't turn out to vote this man would be replacing gavin newsom he got um again only two million votes we have 22 million plus registered voters in california so again just shocking that like that could even possibly happen but he got 47.5 percent of the vote which is it's, it's scary that you know here in california we have people who support someone like him but or just anyone in general honestly but yeah and then a little fun fact too we got to like bring in caitlin jenner here because it's just like a little funny moment i mean it's a cultural moment for sure caitlin jenner got sixty-three thousand votes interesting i just want to like know who voted for her and i want to chat honestly yes i feel like we need natasha in this moment because she had such good takes on this and if you guys were wow i've got somebody like 
TBTs in this moment. But if you guys joined our clubhouse on this recall election earlier this year, we were chatting about like the candidates, like who is going to be on here, all of that stuff. Obviously, Caitlyn Jenner with that media moment was like a part of it. And she was saying like so many people just like look at like government and what's going on is such a joke. Like they don't even care. They're like, it would be kind of funny if Caitlyn Jenner were our governor and like don't actually think of it as like in a serious manner like how it would actually impact them or impact their neighbors yeah. or anything like that and, and why so is like, that the same sentiment as how people thought about kanye running for office last year right. like can people right. grow up like i just can't and the fact like i put down here the fact that we have now had two people in the kardashian jenner clan dynasty cults whatever you want to call it run for office is also something to chat about but we won't get into it. I know people like also want Kim to run for office, which is just like, <sighs> let's just not. Let's put a little pause on the I Kardashians. I don't hate that. I don't hate it as much as like Kanye and, and Caitlyn because I think she has done a lot of amazing stuff advocacy wise. She's passed a lot of amazing criminal justice reform policies and obviously, you know, has put in the effort to try and get her law degree. So she is definitely if I were to pick anyone, it would 100 percent be her. I totally um, agree because I think she puts in the work and like I obviously don't know where she stands on a lot a lot of issues by any means and I, I don't want to even suggest the fact that I like automatically would agree by any means but <laughs> I'd be curious to learn and I could see her being very advantageous at a, a certain level I don't know right. I don't I really don't hate it I hate it for like pretty much all of the others but for Kim I weirdly don't I don't know I mean what can I say? I'm also controversial and I like them, so. <laughs> I mean, and let's talk about, like, the fashion diplomacy that would come from her being her, her being in office. Just love to see it. You but let's move on. You know how I feel about that. We know. You know how we know. I am. Well, let's get, let's introduce our guest because we're super excited about this episode, about this topic. It has been a long time coming mm-hmm. to cover it, but we're, we're coming in hot with a very important topic today. We are, and we are talking about gun violence in the United States. It's been an issue that we have wanted to cover for a while and really wanted to bring in someone that could talk about so many of the background pieces, and this woman is exactly the person to do that, so I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. And it's with Nico Bocure, and she's the Government Affairs Director at Giffords Courage, she will give you more of the background as to what Giver's Courage does, how they were founded, but they work, generally speaking, across three different pillars, including a PAC, a law center, advocacy wing, and more to reduce gun violence in the United States through a number of different ways. So we're going to get into it. Without further ado, here is Nico. Alrighty, well, we are so excited to have you on the show to talk about a topic that somehow we haven't covered yet. We haven't even, shocking, given how pervasive gun violence is in the US. Somehow this is sort of our entrance into this conversation and you could not be the more perfect person to chat about this topic with, which gives her that perfect segue for you to introduce yourself to our guests. Great. Oh, well, thank you for having me. My name is Nico Bocor. I'm the Government Affairs Director at Giffords. Giffords is the gun violence prevention organization that was founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, um, who some of you may recall was a shot in the head, actually, herself at a campaign event when she was a Congresswoman representing her district in Arizona. She survived that assassination attempt, but walked away realizing that there was still so much work that needed to be done and that she could do herself. And After the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary, she realized she needed to take action and very specifically on the issue of gun violence. Gabby is a gun owner herself and she's from Tucson, Arizona. And Arizona is, of course, a very gun-friendly state, a a rich history of, of guns and ranching and all sorts of things. And she knew that there was a conversation that needed to be had that was very honest and that could take place between gun owners like herself who really wanted to find solutions and, you know, the greater public. And so she's really, she formed this organization to take to that. And we have been trying to follow in her 
wonderful footsteps ever since. So that is how Giffords got started. And, and as the government affairs director, it is my job to work with our federal and state legislative teams to help make an impact and help pass laws that we know will save lives. And so that's what um, I personally do. And I'm just lucky enough to get to do it under the lead of Gabby. That is awesome and amazing and so cool. How did you land in this specific zone in the first place? Oh gosh, how does anybody get into the field? That's a great question. I actually did get involved in gun violence prevention when I was younger. I was a student in my hometown, a young student when there was a shooting. And at the time, it just sort of became an impetus for uh, me to volunteer with a local organization. And we went down, I'm from New Jersey, we went down to Trenton and we you know, advocated for some stronger gun laws. And at the time, I thought that this was just one of many passions for me in trying to be a little bit more involved in things that mattered. And I think, you know, that is something I see a lot of young people doing even more today than ever before. And I didn't know that that was going to set me off on a career, right? I think that's a really (laughs) tough thing to plan for. If anybody at the age of, you know, 10 knows what they're going to be doing when they're nearly 40, then um, my hat is off to them. It's, It's something that I couldn't have predicted, but I sort of kept coming back to it. You know, there are certain things in life that just draw you back and, I went off to college and I was not expecting to continue to do advocacy in the same way on this issue. And then I got drawn back in after college with the same statewide group. And then I decided I wanted to go to law school and I went to law school. And then after law school, I was still, you know, in contact with the organizers and the leaders in New Jersey. And they were still working on this issue because not a lot of progress had been made. And I found myself drawn back to it again. And so I came back and started using the things that I had learned along the way um, on this subject. So I'm still here working on gun violence prevention work, but it certainly wasn't it wasn't that something that I I planned yeah. at the age of 10. You know, this is, <laughs> totally. this is the kind of thing that just happens, I guess. No, that's amazing. What a journey. Um, well, to like kind of move forward too and learn more about Giffords, there's a Giffords Law Center and a Giffords PAC. So can you kind of explain what those two pillars are? Yeah, of course. So as I mentioned, I do sort of the lobbying, which I know can be a bad word, but ultimately I think of lobbying as just something we all really should be doing, which is telling our elected officials what we think they should do, right? So we have to call it that, but that's what the C4 does, which is often when people talk about Giffords and they talk about advocacy, that's what they're thinking of. But we have a law center, the Giffords Law Center, and we have a PAC. Giffords Law Center does incredible work. We work very closely with them. They are the ones who help drive implement and defend in the courts the laws and policies that we are working on and that we support. And so they are, you know, sort of the brains, so to speak, behind our effort at Giffords. We have a team of attorneys who are brilliant. And when we think about things like what kind of law we want to pass, they are the ones who will scour, you know, what the law should look like, both from a policy perspective, but they will also, you know, be able to dig into a certain state's code and figure out, well, where will that law um, fit in? And that allows us to have conversations with lawmakers that make it easier for them to actually take action. So the law center is really just an amazing resource for folks. And then the PAC is where we work to elect the officials or defeat the officials that we need to in order to make sure that these really important policies are passing. And so they largely fundraise into our pack, and then we spend money basically to elect people who are going to do what their constituents want. And I say that I say it that way because gun laws are actually really popular. And that's our goal is to make sure that we are investing in getting leaders who are listening to what the public wants and not what the gun lobby wants. So yeah. that's the two entities in addition to uh, the work we're doing over at the C4. It is so interesting that gun laws are super popular, which I think can get into like sort of our next conversation about like, what does that even mean? Like, how does that conversation go on? Like, what do people actually think of gun laws? So what is a red flag law? That's a great question. So 
A red flag law, and sometimes it is also called a an extreme risk protective order. It is a way for typically family members or a household member, so it could be even like a roommate, for example, or law enforcement to go and get from the court a civil order, very similar to a domestic violence protective order, which your listeners may be a little bit more familiar with. This is a non-criminal order, and it would allow the court to look at some evidence that's presented to them and decide whether or not they feel there's sufficient evidence to show that a person actually is a higher risk to commit some sort of violent act with firearms. Um, This is a really important policy because it does people have the tool to remove firearms in a situation where they know there is a danger. And that's really important. We're not here to disarm or advocate for disarming people who are using firearms responsibly. But there was this gap in the laws where somebody might know somebody poses some sort of a threat, but hadn't committed um, an act yet, you know, hadn't committed a violent act with that gun yet. And shouldn't we be able to, in a very responsible way, try to prevent that from happening? So this was actually a policy that was developed by policy experts. One of the sort of Impetuses behind it was that there was a shooting many years ago in which the eventual shooter's family prior to the shooting had actually gone to law enforcement and said, hey, we're really concerned about some of the things that our loved one is saying and doing. And yeah, he hasn't done anything yet, but we think this is very real and he has access to guns and, you know, we can't legally take them away, but what can you do as law enforcement? And they said, we don't have the tools to be able to take them away. He hasn't done anything yet. And unfortunately, that young man did go on to commit a really atrocious act of violence. And so California, it took place in California, and California was one of the first states that um, adopted one of these laws. And, And thankfully, now many other states have as well. And it has saved lives. And not only in preventing, you know, mass shootings, but also it is a really important tool for a family member trying to help a loved one in crisis who might attempt suicide. Mm, Yeah, totally. Well, okay, moving on to our next question, kind of same wheelhouse, but what is a universal background check? And what's kind of included in that? Great question. So fundamentally, a background check basically helps identify who is or isn't eligible to purchase a firearm. And if you pass a background check, you are, it is because you are eligible. And if you don't, it will help prevent you as a person who isn't eligible from being able to get one. They're just a fundamental pillar of you know, preventing gun violence and gun safety. And so right now, the law nationally is called the Brady Act, named after Jim Brady, who was shot. He was former um, President Reagan's press secretary who shot. So it is named the Brady Act. And it is a federal law that requires federally licensed firearms dealers, typically, you know, that person who owns a gun shop, for example, to conduct a background check potential purchasers. And so if you were to go into a store with a dealer, they would conduct a background check, which on average takes mere minutes at most. And then if you passed, you would be able to purchase your firearm. That's typically how it goes. It's a a straightforward process, but there are major loopholes in that law. That is not a universal background check for a few reasons. One is, and the biggest one is that unlicensed private sellers are able to um, sell a firearm right now without conducting a background check. So that means if I purchased a firearm, I could sell it to someone else without checking to see whether or not they're prohibited. And that's a really easy way for guns to get into the hands of people who aren't actually allowed to have them. And one of the big ways that that is done is through something called straw purchases, which is when an individual who can pass a background check goes and buys a ton of guns and then intentionally puts them out on the market so that people who can't buy background checks have access to them. So that's a huge- Like a black market kind of- Exactly, a black market. I feel like there's like so many guns end up on the streets and then you're like, how does this happen? And like your explanation makes like perfect sense. And also too, like with like a universal background check, obviously not everyone's gonna pass, even if it is straightforward. And kind of begs the question, like what are the things that stop people from passing? Or like, what are those things that are at least in place? Like, yeah, it doesn't get everyone. Obviously we have this whole additional issue, but what's it like sort of include in a way where it's like, okay, like ma'am, sir, whatever, like you do not pass. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, two of the biggest ones are if you're convicted of a felony or if uh, you're convicted of certain kinds of domestic abuse. So those are two really big ones. There are some other categories that can make somebody ineligible to purchase a gun, but those are really the two big ones. And what it, you know, what this loophole is, is when you hear about things like somebody being able to sell guns out of the trunk of their car, that's that's a big part of this. And so private sales are a huge issue. And when we talk about universal background checks, we're talking about a very simple act of just requiring a background check if you're going to sell a gun, pretty yeah. much. So just closing that loophole. And it is something that make us safer and that the vast majority of Americans support, the vast majority of gun owners and even Republicans support background checks. So it is a really popular policy and one that we know could be effective. And so that's why you hear people talking about universal background checks and their importance so much. I mean, I guess it like it makes sense, like literally for like most jobs, you have to do a background check. And then it's like, oh, like here's this weapon of violence. And it's like, no, 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 it's fine. Like whatever. Like mm-hmm. what? Like how the fact that those two things are like in, in a similar but different category is beyond me. And wait, would the red flag, so the red flag log, would that like come up on a background check? Is that how that would work? Yeah, exactly. So a if you had a red flag or an extreme risk protective order out against you and it was active, and typically those last for about a year and you would have to apply again to renew them, it is temporary. It's not permanent. And if in that time you were to go to a, a gun store and try to buy a firearm and they ran a background check, then that would come up and it would it would actually not tell the gun dealer why. It doesn't give the gun dealer your personal information, which is important, but it would tell them, hey, this person didn't pass a background check and then they wouldn't be able to buy a gun. So that is one of the factors in states that have uh red flag laws that would come up yeah i have a kind of random question this is kind of a political talking point i think that i just hear often and i just when these mass shootings happen i often hear the argument about you know assault rifles versus you know other guns and i even hear from the kind of the other side when people are like needing gun reform especially after these shootings happen they're like oh well people can just create an assault rifle out of like a regular gun is that can you kind of debunk that myth or like kind of explain it a little further I'm not especially because like I don't know how guns work I think a lot of people don't but even the mechanics of that like how there's often that like kind of political talking point of like oh well if we ban assault rifles they'll just be a way for people to like make them in their garage or something I don't know do you have you heard that Yeah, I mean, we hear a lot of things. That's definitely one of them. You know, the term assault weapon, I think, is something that the gun lobby in particular really likes to get all riled up over. But what we're really talking about is firearms that have certain features that allow them to fire in certain ways. And so those features actually do make those firearms really dangerous and easier specifically to carry out something like a mass shooting. And they don't often have like other purposes. For example, they're not good for hunting because they're designed to shoot more over a wider space and in a faster period of time, rather than sort of the precision shot of being able to find your target and shoot like in hunting. So these are firearms. There's a reason that we see these types of weapons used over and over again in these mass shootings. And um, it is because that's a big component of what they're designed to do, right? Like they are, they have components that allow them to be fired faster. They have components that allow them to be fired more easily for a less experienced shooter and they are really dangerous because of that and and result in you know a lot of tragedies that could otherwise be prevented and so there's various components and so what you often see is people say okay you know one big component for example is how many um rounds are in a magazine and that's something that you know i think they sort of tend to lean into an argument that, oh, it doesn't matter because if it's 10 rounds versus 100 rounds, that individual can just switch out that magazine very quickly. But then you get to the flip side and and you sort of talk to them about, well, if 
if that's the case, then why can't we say, you know, we've seen that people who use hundred round um, drums, for example, like in the Aurora shooting are able to get off a lot of shots in a very small period of time. So if you feel that there's no difference there, fundamental difference, and, and the statistics show that there actually is some sort of a difference, right. why wouldn't we all just agree then let's use 10 rounds? But then you hear the other side, yeah. the same folks. Suddenly there's some other circumstance. And I think part of that problem is, is like, they're actually not trying to base their arguments in reality. They're trying to base their arguments to suit themselves. And that's the dangerous thing there. And so there tends to be this like, idea that no matter what, everything will still happen, that all of this is inevitable yeah. and all of this is not preventable, but that's just not true. And there are yeah. a number of ways we see that, but one of the strongest ways is if you look at state laws, states with the strongest gun laws have the lowest homicide rates per capita and states with the weakest laws tend to have the worst gun violence rates and gun homicide rates. So we do know it makes a difference. It The gun industry is also working often to help create and perpetuate some of these issues. So they are coming up with what they feel like are new ways to sell people, whether it's like a toolkit or an accessory to their firearm that sort of will do something to the firearm that will make it more lethal. That's something that they seems like are constantly coming out with. But I think ultimately those arguments just don't make sense if we didn't pass laws because occasionally someone would find a way to break them. What would be the point of any laws? That's not why we do it. We do it because we know it makes sense. Totally. Next question is, what is a concealed carry? That's a really great question. So concealed carry is basically when someone like you or myself, presumably, I don't know if either of you have um, served in the military, but like a civilian carries a hidden loaded handgun in public, in public streets, crowds, spaces. Some of these types of locations are, for example, like a park, college campus, into hospitals or bars where it is not visible to somebody else. And so that's what concealed carry is. And right now, what we are seeing is different states having very different policies when it comes to concealed carry. Um, At Givers, we support the concept of a concealed carry permit. And that means undergoing a background check and in some cases, some sort of training or other safety mechanism before being given a specific permit that would allow you to do that, to carry a gun on your waistband right. into something like a bar. I think it makes sense. Most public safety officials, even most gun owners, think it makes sense. But unfortunately, the gun lobby and, and some folks support something called permitless carry, which is basically saying, hey, you really shouldn't have to undergo a background check. You really shouldn't have to undergo anything, any sort of training in order to carry a loaded, hidden handgun in public spaces. Well, what? I know like we're going to get into this conversation of like this industry really and the money behind it, obviously. I think that's I think I know the answer kind of to this question, but is kind of the pushback on reform, like passing background checks, getting permits. Is that just because that might, you know, stop people from making that purchase? Is that is that like kind of the answer there? Like, is there any like argument on the other side of why those things wouldn't be passed or wouldn't be accepted. Yeah. I mean, I, I think fundamentally what it does come down to is, as you said, the gun lobby's job these days is to try to sell guns. Yeah. Yeah. And that means that they have to rely on two things. One is an easy way for anybody to get a gun, anybody who wants one and is willing to put money into the system to be able to get one. And also the fear that they use to make people feel like they need a gun. So there are a lot of people who either grew up around guns, who like to hunt, who like to use guns for sports shooting or who collect guns. Those individuals are people who for a long time have already been going to buy guns and generally don't mind going through a background check. But what the gun lobby is doing is they're trying to push guns on people who might otherwise say, oh, I don't need a gun by saying, oh, you do, because 
it's so dangerous and scary out there and you need a gun. And so they have to create, you know, I think a situation, they're working to create a situation where their solution to everybody is just go get your own guns. And then it's not just get one gun, get multiple guns, right? And that is why we're seeing a lot of, you know, these policies. And that's why, you know, something like the NRA, and I know we're going to probably get into this. I think that's where you're going with that. It's gone a completely different direction of where it used to be, which was sort of membership driven gun owners finding a way to communicate with each other, to share information and, and talk about their shared hobby. It's not our grandfather's NRA anymore. It is now just an an arm of the gun lobby um, and it's focused on profits. And so that's really the direction they've gone in. And the propaganda there is like insane. I mean, even just like the propaganda around pushing this like pride around the second amendment and it's your right. And then obviously when people bring in that narrative, they get very stubborn and prideful about this. Like I need a gun because it's my right as an American, this like, kind of almost nationalism brink comes into it again ultimately really to make money which is just anyways but maybe we do maybe we do segue a little bit yeah let's let's segue into some of the background of this because obviously the you know the concept of gun violence just off the bat obviously that sounds awful it is awful but there are so many statistics and data points behind it that I feel like people aren't aware of like they see things off and like whatever is local to them. So if you're in Colorado and it's Aurora, you think of it in that context and so on. But this is definitely a national issue. This isn't just like a one size fits all situation. And it leads me to the question of how many Americans a year are really impacted by gun violence? That's a great question. Well, I would argue that pretty much every American is impacted these days because we have schools that are implementing school shooting drills. And so kids are going through this on a daily basis. And, and you know, most Americans in their lifetime, unfortunately, will know somebody who experienced gun violence. But from, from a, you know, a strictly numbers perspective, the reality is nearly 40,000 Americans are killed by gun violence every single year, which is on average over 105 gun deaths per day. And that is the number of people who have died. And that doesn't even take into account the number of people who are shot, but survive. And in some cases shot and really tragically wounded or facing permanent physical repercussions for their lifetime. Like my boss, like Abby, who lives with her injury, who survived, but lives with her injury every day. And on average, 200 Americans are injured with a firearm every day. This is a really serious issue in this country. And it is not, you know, unfortunately, there has not been enough progress. There has not been enough change. And we're seeing that the, you know, the impact of gun violence, if anything is growing because of the way that we as a country are are trying to adapt to it because of the fact that we're seeing when there's shootings, our leaders not take the kind of action that people are demanding. I think this is this is all part of why this issue has become even more and more important. And something that in particular, the students who survived the Parkland shooting and who spoke out about how unacceptable this is, I think have really helped to transform this conversation for the younger generations because it is no longer politically unsafe to talk about this issue it is now important that people do and that is that is where I think we're seeing a lot of this change come totally well yeah a big player in all of that and kind of this conversation of reform and why maybe it can't happen at the rate we want it to the nra comes to mind so can you explain who and what the nra is yeah the nra the national rifle association well it used to be a membership organization for gun owners back in the day and that's how a lot of people of i probably more the generation above me really knew it and something they or their their parents were involved in if they were gun owners. But now it is just gun lobby arm that is focused on selling guns. And so they've changed a lot from at one point, they actually supported background checks. And now they oppose all common sense gun safety laws. And they have really, you've probably seen some of the troubles that they've faced. Um, They have been embroiled in scandal in part because not only are they so profit driven, but they've been misusing, you know, their, their finances. And so the NRA, I will say 
thankfully has seen their, some of their scandals come to light and are dealing with that. And I think their power has waned as a result of it, at least politically. But there are other organizations that are stepping in to fill that gap. One of those is called the National Shooting Sports and Sports Foundation, otherwise known as NSSF. And they actually are a lobbying organization that specifically represents gun manufacturers. So they're sort of stepping into that place, but because not as many people know their names, sometimes when they take a meeting with um, an elected official, for example, they can be perceived as just representing like any other trade. But that's actually not what they're doing. There's right. they're now a gap that the NRA is less able to fill since they're dealing with their other scandals. But there are other, the gun lobby is, is you know, includes the NRA. They're a big component of it. And now it includes the National Shooting and Sports Foundation, as well as a lot of these local homegrown state groups who just oppose um, any gun laws and can be very extremist as well. So the gun lobby itself is evolving, but certainly they, you know, a lot of them took their cues from, from the NRA and the direction they went in. Well, why... Why did they kind of shift that way? Like, why did they shift to just being, you know, kind of radical in the way of, like, just being opposed to any and all reform? Is there, like, a decline in gun sales? Is there a shift in the culture there that they're, like, kind of losing, I guess, the crowd, like you said, even, like, the, your grand, your grandfather's NRA? Like, is that, is that culture shifting? Is that why they're kind of scrambling to keep sales up and limit any like reforms or laws that you know inhibit people from making that purchase is that kind of yeah I think they saw an opportunity right they saw that telling folks hey go get this hunting rifle meant maybe somebody was getting a new hunting rifle every so often but if their old one was working fine um, maybe they were happy with that and they really saw a need to try to grow sales in a lot of different creative ways. But it's important to remember this, they didn't just attack, you know, guns and gun sales purely from the perspective of increasing sales. They also started working on things like special immunities for the gun industry. So for example, the gun industry right now has, there's a, there's a a law that allows the gun industry to keep itself, prevent itself from being sued, even if they were found to do certain things that for other industries would be considered to be illegal. They've been able to put into place, you know, policies that make sure that something like the manufacturing of a teddy bear has more restrictions than the manufacturer of a firearm. Um, and I, if I wanted to, you know, become a manicurist or a nail technician, I would need to undergo in, in most states far more hours of training and pay fees and get certain licenses than I would to buy a gun um, or carry a gun into a bar um, in many states. So insane. They went at it from all angles. Yeah, this is something that they were doing for a long time. And again, this was a lot of this was before the Sandy Hook shooting. And since then, organizations like ours have been realizing, okay, we need to fight back. And that's what we're doing now. Totally. Well, what's what's kind of the deal like globally with this issue? Like, is the the US like alone on this hill of just being kind of gun obsessed and lacking of reform? Are there other kind of developed countries that have issues with gun violence? Or if so, have they made those reforms? What's the deal there? Is this a U.S. problem specifically? I would say it is. I mean, look, gun violence has existed in other countries, but the U.S. leads high-income nations in gun violence by far. We account for 4% of the world's population, but 35% of global firearm suicides and 9% of global firearm homicides. So disproportionately, we are experiencing gun violence, and that's globally. And then when you look at specifically other high-income nations, the U.S. is definitely um, on a hill of its own, essentially. We, We have a very serious problem. We have more guns than we do people in the United States. And so it is something that- That's why they're trying to like push sales probably, right? (laughs) Absolutely. They're trying to push sales. And it's also why certain claims that they make, right? Like, 
I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a time when they were saying that any gun law would result in like a registry and people coming to confiscate every single gun. And there's there are more guns out here than there are people like there. We don't have the manpower to do that. These are things that plainly aren't were not going to happen. They were not a part of the policies that were being pushed. And it wasn't even part of a secret agenda. But you know, they are, they weren't being very honest with folks and it, they were able to successfully scare a lot of their supporters into believing that. And so what that does is it drives up gun sales because people think, oh my gosh, if I don't get my gun now, I'm not going to be able to for long. Even people who could pass background checks will, will have that feeling and they'll rush out and they'll um, buy more guns. So that's part of the cycle that they've created. And the U.S. for Right now, we're sort of, we've been, I guess, sort of stuck in that cycle for too long. And now we're trying to break out of that. Yeah. So I guess speaking of like sort of the status quo of like where we're at with it, like generally speaking, like what is the attitude nationally towards gun reform? What about like, I know state by state, it's kind of hard to break down by all of them, but generally speaking, like, are there some trends that are are going on in this conversation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, like I said, background checks are widely supported. So over 90% of all voters support background checks, including almost 90% of Republicans, actually. The vast majority of Democrats, I think it's 95 or 97% of Democrats support universal background checks, but close to 90% of Republicans do as well. And so we are seeing that there's a lot of support for some of these policies, but whether or not that support translates into how representatives are representing the people is another story. And, you know, we all have a lot of issues that we really care about. I know I care about a lot of things when I choose who I'm voting for. Gun laws is a big part of that, of course, but there are other issues I care about. And I think one of the things is is that for a really long time, people didn't consider guns to be one of their top priorities when they were kind of deciding who to support. And so that allowed certain elected officials to say, hey, I'm going to do almost everything, but I just don't know about gun laws. I just don't know if they're popular yet. And there was, I think, just a common belief, uh, a false belief that Americans didn't support stronger gun laws. But now that we know that we do, that's why we're seeing more and more people talk about things like guns on the campaign trail. We've had better polling. So a majority of Americans support stronger gun laws overall beyond background checks. And we're seeing that continue to trend. Another, of course, popular policy is the extreme risk law, which um, following the Parkland shooting, actually Florida passed an extreme risk law, a red flag law, and it was signed into law. Florida Republican legislature um, signed into law by (laughs) a Republican governor. And then a couple of other Republican governors actually followed suit and signed into law red flag laws. So there is some bipartisan support, but overall, I think we are seeing that there's still a lot of work to be done, but the public is with us. So we just need to keep reminding folks to do things like get out and vote and to pay attention to where people are on this issue in particular when they're deciding who to vote for. And is kind of the common answer as to why the policy isn't being passed is because of the money behind the lobbying of those representatives who are saying no even though their constituents are saying yes. Yeah, I think so. I think for a long time that was the case. These days, I will say that I think that we're seeing just generally it it can be a little bit harder to pass certain laws at the federal level. At the state level, we've seen over 350 laws passed to strengthen gun laws since Sandy Hook. So we are seeing some positive changes across the country. And that, you know, when I say 350 laws, that sounds kind of crazy, but we're talking about laws that range from closing those loopholes in our background check systems to doing things like supporting the appropriate implementation of something like a red flag law. So making sure that we're not just passing a red flag law, but that we're actually working with courts and law officials and counselors and anyone else who might be a part of a conversation around a red flag law on how to do this in the safest, um, most effective way possible. So these are all things that are an important component to gun safety. Some of them are less widely talked about, but they're definitely an important component. 
Definitely. And then to sort of bring it back to Giffords, what do you guys have in the hopper? What are you guys trying to sort of work through, push through the gate? Uh, anything sort of our listeners should know about? Yeah. So as I've said, the, the universal background text is a huge, important piece of this. It is a fundamental, it's sort of the baseline, it's the foundational piece. So that is where, that is our number one priority at the federal level right now. But another component to gun safety is making sure that we are thinking about the communities that are impacted every day and what we can do there. And so one of the solutions that's a little bit newer, but is being discussed more often is uh, something known as like violence interruption and prevention strategies. And this is often an individual or a group of people who um, have credibility in a particular neighborhood, generally in particular, and are able to go and have conversations to interrupt cycles of violence. So they are doing a really important job of getting out there and having conversations and intervening and stopping some of the cycles of violence that we've seen impact in particular Black and Brown communities across the country. These programs are really effective and impactful and have helped reduce gun homicide rates in cities where they're implemented. So something that we've been doing is advocating for support for that. And what it comes down to a lot of the time is funding, making sure that these individuals are able to do this as as their job and are being compensated to do so, but also have the resources to have this be um, a program that is sustained by the communities they serve. So we are also really excited that the House it has passed through and is included in their budget some funding for these strategies for community violence initiatives. And we are going to continue to fight to make sure that the Senate also uh, supports that funding. Mm-hmm. And so that is another one of our federal priorities. And so that and universal background checks right now are, I think, two areas where we'd love for your listeners to uh, get more involved in. It's really timely for both of those. And the Senate could really use their voice. Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue because we wanted to ask kind of what our listeners can do to take action, but also to kind of learn more about also the laws in their states and how they can kind of reach those lawmakers to hopefully make some change here. Yeah, I would say I hate to do this, Go to our website, though, because we no, have so much information. <laughs> it is Giffords.org. But what I would specifically urge folks to look for is our scorecard, where we actually give states scores based on their own state gun laws. So right now, for example, a state like California has the highest marks. That probably won't come as a surprise to your listeners. A state like New Jersey is pretty soon after. And then you're going to see on the flip side, a state like Mississippi um, has some of the weakest gun laws. I think it'll surprise people to see that there are a lot of states that fall into that C, D, and F category. Um, In particular, pay attention to where there are Ds and Fs, because that really means your state is, is not even doing the bare minimum for what should be considered gun safety. And there are a lot of things that can be done in those states. And a lot of those have to do with closing some of these basic background check loopholes, strengthening their domestic violence laws, things like making sure that convicted of a crime related to domestic violence that would prohibit them from getting a gun if they were a spouse, but doesn't because they're a boyfriend, right? We call it the boyfriend loophole. That's really, that's a, that's an important, like huge loophole. And that's a very straightforward change that can be made. So these are the types of things that state gaps still contain. And, and if you live in one of those states, feel free to reach out to us if you're interested in getting involved, because there's a lot more that can be done at the state level as well. Totally. Amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, we plugged the website. Is there any other like social media we can find you guys on or what's kind of some more stuff you can plug for us? Yeah, we're on across our social media. We are at Gifford's Courage. So on Twitter and Instagram, and then you can just find us on Facebook just by looking up Gifford's. And we do try to post across all um, platforms and we 
will include calls to action and things along those lines as well over there. And the other thing is, is, is it depends on like what level of advocacy you want to get involved in. If you are somebody who is interested in, for example, if you're a gun owner, but you care about gun safety laws, we have a gun owners coalition. If you are somebody who wants to go and testify in support of laws, feel free to reach out to us. Feel free to reach out to me directly if you want, even. I can put you in touch with the right folks. We want to create room for everybody to have a voice on this issue because they know it impacts everybody. So there are a lot of different ways to get involved, but definitely check out our social media. For nothing else, a daily dose of Gabby Giffords will help lift your spirits. So (laughs) fact, absolute fact. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for all of these details. This awesome conversation. We really appreciate having you on and hope to have you on again soon. Talk about, hopefully we'll have some progress on progress. these universal, yes. you know, background checks and we can, you know, sort of talk about, you know, where they're at and all that good stuff. But thank you again. This has been phenomenal. Great. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone listening. All right, you guys, top stories of the week. And we're going to start off by talking about the Haitian-Texas border conflict, crisis, conflict. I think the words are interchangeable there. But basically, here's the story. Thousands of Haitian immigrants are traveling from Haiti to Texas in order to escape the poverty in their home country. There's also some political turmoil and just really devastating damage after another massive earthquake in Haiti. U.S. immigration had plans in order to speedily send them back to Haiti, but many of them stated that these plans won't stop them from crossing the border ultimately. Many crossed the Rio Grande in order to purchase food, diapers, and other necessities in order to survive before returning to the Texas encampment. The Department of Homeland Security said Saturday that it moved about 2,000 of the migrants from the camp to other locations Friday for processing and possible removal from the U.S. Its statement also said it would have 400 agents and officers in the area by Monday morning and would send more if necessary. So a U.S. official told the Associated Press that they will begin to fly Haitian migrants out. However, many Haitian migrants still plan on staying at the encampment to seek asylum because, again, there is a lot going on in Haiti and is unsafe, ultimately, in multitude of ways. And so there has been a lot of conversation here and a lot of migrant advocates are speaking out and the Department of Homeland Security um, is invoking the public health law known as Title 42 to quickly take Haitians into custody and fly them back to their troubled homeland, denying them an opportunity to make a claim to stay in the U.S. by seeking asylum. So DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorka said Monday that most of Haitians removed from the Del Rio encampment have been expelled under the authority of Title 42, which is angering human rights activists and others who had hoped to see the policy ended by an administration that has otherwise sought to reverse much of the Trump's immigration agenda. So this Title 42 was something enacted under Trump. And again, a lot of immigration and human rights advocates have been pushing for that to be repealed. Look at the law and the controversy that surrounds it. So Title 42 in the Public Health Service Act gives federal health officials power during a pandemic to take extraordinary measures to limit transmission of infectious disease. It's not a new power. The authority has in various forms been around since 1893 and the Trump administration invoked it in March of 2020 to sweeping effect prohibiting entry by virtually anyone from Mexico and Canada and essentially sealing the northern and southern borders. It was intended to prevent the spread of COVID in cramped border patrol stations or in facilities run by immigration and customs and enforcement. Critics of the policy see it as a thinly disguised measure to thwart immigration, noting it deprives people of the right to claim asylum or seek to remain in the U.S. through some other legal avenue. So what's kind of happening under Biden right now? So President Biden has been unwinding many Trump policies targeting both legal and illegal immigration, but the new administration has kept Title 42 in place as COVID continues to rage around the world and amid an increase in migrants seeking to enter the U.S. at the southwest border, due in part to economic upheaval of the pandemic and overall conditions in Central America, Haiti, and elsewhere. So the Biden administration halted the Trump era practice of expelling unaccompanied children into Mexico, and it has allowed some migrants traveling with their children to stay in the U.S. to pursue asylum claims or other legal residency. But it has expelled tens of thousands of adults and families under Title 42, insisting it's a public health measure and not an immigration policy. So the ACLU and others filed a class action lawsuit seeking to end the expulsion of families. They 
seemed to score a victory last week when a federal judge in Washington said the use of Title 42 in this manner was likely illegal. And he said he would order an administration to stop expelling families in two weeks. But within hours, the administration said it would appeal this. So an ACL attorney said the Biden administration claims it wants to distance itself from the Trump administration's inhumane asylum policies, yet it has retained the most extreme of all the policies, the Title 42 policy that is literally sending families into the hands of persecutors and cartels. And so what's happening in Del Rio in recent days, thousands of migrants from Haiti have sought to enter the U.S. at the Del Rio border crossing. Haitians have been trying to get into the country over the southwest border for years, but it's not clear what prompted so many to gather at this one spot at this particular moment. And so in May, the Biden administration granted temporary protected status, TPS, for Haitians who were already in the United States, but that does not apply to people massing near Del Rio. So Nicole Phillips, who's the legal director for an advocacy group, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, said Saturday, the U.S. government should process migrants and allow them to apply for asylum and not rush to expel them. And there are pictures taken of some Border Patrol officers like lassoing and whipping migrants to evacuate. So AOC and Ilhan Omar comment, both commented on these pictures that surfaced. Omar said... These are human rights abuses, plain and simple, cruel, inhumane, and a violation of domestic and international law. Omar tweeted, she said, this needs a course correction in the issuance of a clear directive on how to humanely process asylum seekers at our border. AOC said, it doesn't matter if a Democrat or Republican is president, our immigration system is designed for cruelty towards and dehumanization of immigrants. So she said, immigration should not be a crime and its criminalization is a relatively recent invention and this is a stain on our country, which if you did see those images, they are horrifying, horrifying, devastating, disgusting. And I don't know, I think we're waiting on kind of where biden's going to come out on this there has been a lot of outrage um, especially regarding those images so we will keep everyone posted on what happens here but overall another kind of border crisis under under the biden administration here so yeah i mean it's just it the whole thing is really devastating to see i wish i were surprised but i'm not but hopefully next week we'll have some more positive updates on where that lands in the meantime we have to go down another dark path Um, that dark path deals with the Supreme Court. So they are set to hear arguments on December 1st. So, you know, right in time for the holiday season. But this definitely does not bring the holiday cheer because it is regarding the potential overturn of the landmark case, Roe v. Wade, that good old decision that we love to reference many a time. There is a Mississippi-based case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this case is really positioned as that experiment to whether they can overturn Roe versus Wade. So Mississippi is essentially asking the Supreme Court to uphold its ban on most abortions after the 15th week. The state told the court they should overrule Roe and the 1992 decision to plan parenthood versus Casey prevents states from banning abortions before viability, which is the point at which a fetus can survive outside of the womb around 24 weeks of pregnancy. The court recently allowed a Texas law to take effect that bans abortions after six weeks which is way before many women even know that they're pregnant. So it's really all connected here. The law that we're talking about in Texas, if you don't recall, also allows private citizens to sue people who may have facilitated an abortion. There are some things going on with that this week as well. Um, Looking at a doctor that admitted to performing abortions and basically it's sort of a look at whether it will constitutionally hold up or not. It's currently being sued from two different people. So there was lots going on with the Texas law, but this is not the only state in the game. Obviously, Mississippi's in this game. And bans on pre-viability abortion have been struck down until now in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Montana, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, and Tennessee. Make it a song, maybe. Okay, cool. I'm too tone deaf to do that, but if someone else wants to do that, let me know. Anyways, where this sort of leads us is with six of the nine justices being right-leaning conservatives there is a lot of concern as to what the future of this case will look like especially and especially in the context of the texas law not being struck down amy coney barrett was of course part of this original omg what the hell is going to happen moment last year with the passing of ruth bader ginsburg and a few weeks ago stated in regards to the criticism that the decision was partisan as regards to texas she said, to say the court's reasoning is flawed is different from saying the court is acting in a partisan manner. 
The media, along with the hot takes on Twitter, report that it results in decisions that make the decision seem results-oriented. It leaves the reader to judge whether the court was right or wrong based on whether she likes the results of the decision. And here's the thing. Sometimes I don't like the results of my decisions, but it's not my job to decide cases based on the outcome I want. Okay, well, ma'am, ma'am, just ma'am. I'm going to leave it there. And many were looking at that statement, concerned about the future of women's reproductive rights. And there is obviously much, much uh, room for concern currently and going down the line as this comes to fruition in December. I don't think this is going to be the end of other laws that come through before then. That will be sort of a part of this larger equation of what we're seeing very much, unfortunately. We'll keep you updated on everything regarding how the Supreme Court views this, takes this into account and everything. But uh, December was never my favorite month. Definitely not now. Definitely not in this situation. But a great song I can recommend is Back to December by Taylor Swift if anyone wants to just like have a moment. Um, Don't. You know, just like there you go. Anyways, that's kind of, that's it for our top stories today, folks. Uh, But we will be back next week with another awesome episode. I know quite a few of you submitted questions for episode four next week. So we are super excited to have you guys hear your questions, the answers that have come from that. And in the meantime, rate, review, subscribe, follow, tell a friend, tell tell a foe too, maybe, you know? Okay. Yeah, that um, works. You know, um, you never know. No, totally. Could really I mean, be a way to mend fences or I don't know, create some random friendships. I really don't know where I'm going with this, but I think I need coffee. That's okay. No, we love it. Also join our brand ambassador program. You can learn more in the episode description here or in the link in our bio on Instagram. Go check out Prima. Go check out Commune. All of those links are provided in the episode description. So go check them out and have a fantastic week. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.